If you turn to the Gospel of Matthew, we'll read a little bit about that encounter that they just sang about. In Matthew chapter 1, we'll start in verse 18. It says, The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Amen. We're going to look at that last verse there in a few moments, but before we do that, I just want us to think a little bit about the amount of time that you have already spent or that this week you will be spending trying to buy the perfect gift for your loved ones. Whether it's your children or grandchildren, whether it's your spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend, whether it's just your friends, you want to buy that perfect gift. You want to buy the thing that that shows your heart to them, that shows that you care, that shows that you know them well enough to, to know what would bless them and what would be a blessing to them. But it's interesting, the gift does in many in many ways reflect our heart. Right? We're trying to find something that, that shows our love for our loved ones. But isn't it awful when you've spent all that time maybe searching and, and fighting in lines or going online and trying to find the, the, the perfect gift, when you've spent all that time to discover that when they open the gift, they look at it and say, what is this? Or they say, Oh, I have three of these. Or could I have the receipt? Ah, oh, just tears your heart out, doesn't it? It's hard when you think you found the perfect gift, and yet the receiver of that gift is kind of like, eh, it's okay. It's a big letdown. Well, I want us to think about that feeling, that, that encounter there, but in a much grander space, right? In this passage, in Matthew chapter 1, the angel is sent to, to Joseph to help him to understand what is going on. Because this was not the way Joseph had planned his life, right? There's been a, a big curve, a big, a big off-ramp as to Joseph's plans and, and his plans with Mary and when they were going to start their family and all of that. It was, this was not the way Joseph had it planned. And so he needed an, a divine encounter, and God knew that, and so sent his angel, his messenger. And in verse 21, he says, of Mary, he says, she will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And so that's really the, the title of this morning's message is he will save his people from their sins. Because of all the things that angel could have said to Joseph, this was what he said. 
He didn't say he will do miracles and he'll help the, the, the blind to see and the lame to walk. I mean, that is said in Scripture. But in this moment, what Joseph needed to hear and what we all need to hear is that the birth of Jesus was for a very specific purpose. Yes, he's a great teacher. Yes, he taught us the parables. He told us the stories like the prodigal son. Like he opened up our eyes to understand who God was and how God feels towards us sinners. So that we could see the grace and mercy of God displayed on the cross. He is given to us specifically, as stated here, because he will save us from our sins. Now, we don't like to think of ourselves as sinners, do we? Maybe we think we were sinners, but we don't like to think of that. In fact, there's a survey that was taken on the streets of Chicago recently, and the question was simply this Do you think that you're a sinner? Do you think that you're a sinner? Most people said no. No, because terrorists are sinners and murderers are sinners and bad people like that are sinners. Now, we're way above those people, right? We're several floors above them. We think in our minds that that is true. Now, we're not perfect, we understand that, but we're all striving to be better people. Every day we get up and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to do good today. I'm going I'm to be better than I was yesterday. And maybe we succeeded to some level. We're good people, right? Would you agree? Yeah, yeah. Gene says yes. We're good people. We're good people. Um, however, uh, let me warn you that there were people thinking they were good people 2,000 years ago as well. And the problem with thinking that you're a good person and meeting Jesus is that you actually distance yourself from him or your need for him because basically, what do you need him for? You're a good person all on your own. You're working hard and you're striving to do better and sometimes you think you are doing better. The problem is when Jesus came into the world... Those people who thought they were good people actually thought they were too good for Jesus. Too good for Jesus. Can you imagine? Who were those people? Well, we know they were the Pharisees, the Sadducees. The religious people actually thought they were too good for Jesus. What did they need him for? So... Let's look at this verse here this morning. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. And kind of the last part of the verse. If Jesus came to save his people from their sins, do you think that you're one of his people needing to be saved? Have you come to realize that honestly, you're a disaster waiting to happen? In fact, you're a disaster who might have already happened. You just cleaned yourself up a little this morning and, and, and got to church. But we're all a disaster waiting to happen on our own. So we need someone to save us 
daily, constantly, to be in the process of saving us. The good news is that if you have failed, if you're at the bottom, if you're in your pig pen, Jesus has come. Jesus has come. And when Jesus spoke, he spoke words like this in Matthew eleven twenty eight. He said, come to me, all of you who are weary and who are heavy burdened, because I will give you rest. It's so important for us to open up to what only Jesus can do. And only he can save us. We cannot save ourselves. Now I know that you know you know that. I raised four kids. And often when I would bring a word of correction, they would say, I know, Dad. And my response to that kind response was, then why aren't you doing it? If you know it up here, do it out here where the rest of us can see it. Convince me with your actions that you know you need a Savior, that you know you need Jesus. Convince me with your worship that you know you need a Savior. Don't hold back from him. Don't stand at a distance. Don't say like, yeah, I got two of those. I'll show you. They're in my garage. They're in my closet. So let's think about these words. And we'll take them sort of word by word. The first word in this sentence is he. Seems like a simple word. Although in today's world... Not so simple anymore, but let's go back in history. He will save his people from their sins. He, Jesus, and no one else, he alone will save his people. All by himself, he will do it. Only he qualifies to do it. He's the only one who could save anybody. Because why? He lived the perfect life. He was the perfect Lamb of God. There's only been one like him. So he, in fact, the whole verse says, she will give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He, Jesus, is qualified to save us. You and I are not. Our name is not in that verse. The angel did not say, Joanne will save you from your sins. Judy will save you from your sins. PJ, PJ, he's going to do it. No, Jesus and he alone will save us from our sins. That's it. No effort by you or anyone else can make that happen. Now, let's think about this. Naming at that time in that culture was very significant. Their names were actually messages. Our names today are just labels. You know, this is a label that your parents slapped on you when you were born, right? Their names had way more significance than that. This significant message is actually lost in our English translations, but it's very clear in the Hebrew. 
You shall call his name Yeshua. Yeshua actually means he saves or delivers, right? So you shall call his name he saves or he delivers. For he will, Yoshia, will save his people from their sins. So the Hebrew word for he will save is Yoshia, which is actually from the Hebrew root word, Yeshua. See, Jesus' name is explained on the basis of what he will do. His name tells you what he will do. Saving is his actual identity. He is Savior. He is the one who saves. And there's no other name for him. There's no other name under heaven for which men can be saved except the name of Jesus. Because his name means he's the Savior. And that means in order for him to save us, we need to be savable. We need to be sinful, actually. Sinners need a Savior. Those who do not consider themselves to be sinners in their own minds don't need a Savior. And that was the problem with the Pharisees. And that is the problem among many people today. What do I need Jesus for? Why did God give me that gift? What is it? That's the question that we have to answer. We have to answer for ourselves first and primarily, but also for the world. So let's go on with the, with the next two words here. He will save his people from their sins. The future tense here is very important. Remember, he is and was and is to come. He's that kind of God. He's not, he's not trapped in a time frame or in a place in history. He's everywhere at once. Jesus is more than just a historical figure. And unfortunately, many people who consider themselves Christians, at this time of year, they just think about the history story of Jesus. Yes, he was born in Bethlehem more than 2,000 years ago. That's true. That's history. And so, yes, we remember it. But there's so much more to that. He is in the process of continuing to save us, continuing to save more and more people for his glory and for his kingdom. You see, his Jewish contemporaries, they wanted salvation, but they wanted salvation from the Roman oppression, from the Roman government that had come in and sort of squashed them and put them under that, 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 that heel of their military and political power. We may want saving from that as well. However, that's not what the angel meant. He's going to come in and remove Rome, remove your oppression, remove the temporary thing. Jesus came to give far more than a temporary fix. He came to bring an, an eternal fix into our lives. For all time and all eternity, Never irrelevant. See, if Jesus were just part of history and he came in at that time and he did rescue them from the Romans and drove the Romans back to Italy or something like that, guess what? Another government would come in at another time in history and put them back under oppression. And guess what? We know that because it kept happening again and again and again throughout the Old Testament. It was the Assyrians. It was the Babylonians. It was, you know, again and again. So 
a temporary fix is not what we need. A temporary savior is not what we need. We need an eternal savior. We need one who gets the job done now and forevermore. And that's who Jesus is. So if you've handed yourself over to Jesus, your future is bright. Your future is certain. It is already determined by God. And nothing can rob you of it. That is the joy and the assurance that we have in Christ. And I hope you share in that assurance. I hope you're not one of those Christians that are like, Ooh, I hope I've been good enough. Hello? You'll never be good enough. It's not based on you. You're not worthy to be saved. Jesus was good enough. Jesus is worthy to be our Savior. And he has decided to pour out his love on you and to bring you in to salvation. To invite you in to the party. Hallelujah. So let's not think that it's based on anything that we can do. In fact, here's the problem. You and I can rarely say anything with certainty. For instance, I'm going to be home at 9.30 Sunday night. You could say that. You have no way of guaranteeing that. In fact, my wife and I were flying home from my daughter's house in Tennessee last Sunday night. And we told the people back here in Massachusetts, we'll be home at 9.30. That's, what the, that's the flight schedule. We'll be home at 9.30. So we get to, were we in Baltimore? We get to Baltimore. They pull away from the gate. Okay, everything's going well. Everything's going well. They pull away from the gate. They stop the plane. Oh, there's going to be a slight delay. You know, oh, some luggage is lost. We sat there for an hour, an infuriating hour. And I know some of you have sat much longer on the tarmac, they call it. You have no guarantees. You have no control. Unless you want to be arrested by the people at the airport, you shouldn't really go and try to open the emergency door and run out and say, I'm, I'm done with you people. I'm getting another flight. You can't do it. Now you're trapped. You're trapped there. They pulled away from the gate. There is no gate for you to walk out and get back in the airport with. We can not say anything with certainty. We are human. We are not in control of all things. But there is one who is in control of all things. There is one who does say everything with certainty. And he cannot lie. He cannot say anything that's false. Because he is truth. He is the truth. He is Jesus our Lord. And so whatever he has said about you and your salvation and your future is guaranteed. And that's the rock that we stand on in faith. Jesus has never failed anyone who has turned to him for salvation. Never. Never once. And he never will. So what does it mean to be saved? You know, that word is there in that, in that, in that, in that verse. He will save his people. Here's the beauty of being sinners with a Savior like Jesus. Just listen Try to connect with these words. Because I also looked up the Hebrew for this to save. And what did I find? I found that in the Old Testament Hebrew, to save suggests to give width and breadth. Not breadth, but breadth. The wideness of something. To liberate. From the Arabic meaning to be wide and spacious. We love space, don't we? 
Not outer space, but just space. Give me space, sometimes people say. When someone's on you, you know, you're getting henpecked. Give me some space. I need to think. I need to breathe. I need to, I need to slow down. Jesus offers rest. Remember that verse? Come to me, and I will give you rest or space. Because what happens is, A savior is one who releases a person from the confinement or narrowness or limitations of life. The savior comes to bring us up and out of that. Remember, Jesus said in John 8, 34, he who sins is a slave to sin. Slavery. Captivity. And we all know about that personally. How we get ourselves into patterns and habits and compulsions that end up binding us and driving us and controlling us and eventually hurting us and those around us. But Jesus, as a Savior, reaches down and lifts the prisoner up out of that prison, the man-made prison, the self-made prison, and lifts us up into openness and freedom from that confinement. So we can move again. So we can breathe again. Who wants imprisonment? Prison is punishment. And we make our own prisons every time we build our lives on sin. And we continue to move around in a life of sin. It's a prison. It's a trap, we call it. It's a web that continues to bind us up. And Jesus has come to save us from that. You see, sin is confinement because it closes off options for life. It promises you the opposite, but it ends up taking over your life, controlling you. We all know this from our personal experience. We all along, we all long to be saved from that confinement, that feeling of being trapped. And Jesus has come. To bring us salvation. To remove those chains. To help us to walk in freedom. Jesus actually came to give us our lives back. Because we had lost them to sin. We had wound ourselves up so deeply in our captivity. That he came to rescue us. He knew we couldn't get out on our own. We tried. We tried to beat that thing. We tried to change ourselves, but we kept failing and building bigger chains and wrapping them around us one more time. Jesus came to remove that from us, to give us back our dignity as children of God, made in the image of God. We're not made to be slaves to sin. We're made to be sons and daughters of God, of righteousness. And he came came to open up our future again. We made so many mistakes, so many bad choices that our options were very limited. We could continue down this road till death. That's it. Or the Savior could come, rescue you from that, remove those chains and give you a whole new future, a whole new purpose, a whole new life. So if you ever fear that turning yourself over to Jesus will shut you down somehow and limit you in life, you got it all wrong. The truth is actually the opposite of that. He opens up life to us. 
Because without Jesus, your life ends up being a prison cell. Now, you can decorate your prison cell. You can cut out little snowflakes and decorate it for Christmas or whatever out of toilet paper. Right? But it's still a prison cell. He came to release us from that. Jesus has come to bring us out of prison, out of captivity, and into freedom now, but especially forevermore. Forevermore. So with Jesus, he redefines your destiny. And if we could just try to get a glimpse, which we can't, because Scripture tells us we can't ask or imagine, we, we can't imagine what he's prepared, but if we could try to imagine what the imagination of that might be, it's way beyond anything you could ask or imagine. Your future, you, you as an individual, not just us as a church, but he cares for each and every one of you. And he wants to pour out his wisdom, his kindness on you forever, for an eternity. That's what a savior does. And I loved looking at this verse word by word or section by section, because the next section after he will save is his people. He will save his people. What that says to me is that he's not doing this. He's not doing his saving from like an arm's length away or a distance from us. He's not over here somewhere dealing with the problems and we're over here somewhere. He comes to us. And that's the beauty of Bethlehem, right? He doesn't stand at a distance. He doesn't hold his nose and try to get past us. Oh, they stink. You know, I got to get away from these people. He comes right to us. In our stink. Where was he born? In a barn. What's in the barn? Animals. What do animals do? They stink, right? I think they do. You know, I guess you could wash them up or whatever, but that's not what was happening back then, right? Jesus came to us in that. He, again, like I said earlier, he didn't say you got to clean yourselves up first. Clean yourselves up. I can't stand you. I can't stand the smell of you. That's not God. If you feel like that in God's presence, whoo, we got some teaching to do. That is not how God sees you. That's not how he experiences you. God loves sinners so much that he came to them to live with them and identify with them by being born like one of them, a baby in a manger, into poverty, into civil unrest, into, into problems, into seeing friends die, you know, into, in, into having to weep at Lazarus' tomb. Like, he, he went through it to come close to us so you could never say, Jesus, you don't understand. I know you still say it because I hear it from you sometimes. But... But you shouldn't say it because he does understand. He understands us better than we understand ourselves, honestly. Because we're good at self-deception. We're good at like fooling ourselves. I know I am. He sees us as we truly are. And he comes to us like that father running to his son. Wrapping his arms around his son. His son probably didn't smell very good either. He was living in a pigsty. But anyway, uh, 
he is that kind of God. So he comes to our level and, and he really does. He owns us as his friends. He says, these are my people. So when he says he will save his people, you want to be one of his people. You want to be one of his friends. You want to draw close to him and say, God, I don't deserve it, but please make me your friend. You know, forgive me. Help me to walk in a relationship with you. Help me to walk and talk with you. Help me to understand your love and to grow into that love so that I am reflecting this friendship in my life. I am a friend of God. I'm a friend of Jesus. He chose to make us his friends. In fact, he even said to his disciples, like, disciples, oh, I no, I no longer call you that. I actually call you friends. Now you're my friends. And remember, he was criticized for being friends to sinners. So what actually happens when we're saved? Because he does it perfectly. It wasn't a like, oh, one day he's up in heaven. He goes, you know what? Maybe I'll go down there and save them. I don't know. What do you think, God? No, he didn't do that. He had planned it from the very beginning of time. This is all part of his master story, which we, we get a glimpse of, but we, there's no way we can understand it all. Our brains are too confined. But, but think about it. He had planned this from the very beginning. Meticulously, perfectly, he planned to save us. His salvation plan is perfect. It cannot be improved upon. You need to understand that. So what does the plan include? Just three things here this morning, because I know people like three. It's like the number of the Trinity, I guess, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three. It's maybe all we can think of at a time, right? Three things. Our salvation includes, Jesus' perfect salvation plan includes, number one, your justification. It justifies his people. His salvation, through Jesus, you are justified. Now, when I was a kid in Sunday school, because words are big and we're, we're not so smart when we're kids, or even when we're adults, uh, justified was explained like this, just as if I'd never sinned, all right? Justified, just as if I'd never sinned. That's what Jesus did, and he did it perfectly. He didn't do 99.9% of you purified, made holy. But there's that 1% I'm going to leave right there just to annoy her. Nope, he didn't do that. 100% of your sin was paid for on the cross. 100%. Can we say 100%? 100%. All right? 100% of your sin was paid for by the blood of Jesus shed for you. He justified you. So when you come before the Father, when you come and say, I want to be a part of your family, I want you to adopt me as, as your child, he doesn't look at any sin. He looks at the Savior. He looks at Jesus, the one who came to save you from your sin. And he did save you from your sin. Got to tell yourself that. Got to realize that that's the truth of what salvation means. The second thing he does is he sanctifies his people. So this is the part that we all struggle with. Now, to sanctify someone, you know, it's, it, you know, it, it's like Jesus begins to change our personality or, or, or our, our temperament over time. 
And it's an overtime thing. We start to look a little more like him. We start to care about some of the things he cares about. We start to think about some of the things he thinks about. And as we do that, as we process through life, as we continue to take in the word of God, take in the, the, the Holy Spirit's work in us, we are changed to become more and more like him. We're being sanctified. So yes, you and I, were a work in progress. But the progress is being done by Jesus. And he does all things well. He is faithful to complete what he's begun to do in you. So if you look in the mirror and you go, ah, same old, same old. That's actually not true. If you're in Christ, you are being changed. You have to grasp that truth. Because otherwise, we're very, I said it earlier this morning to someone here in the the aisle, we're very self-critical. We look at ourselves and say, oh my gosh, I will never get over this. I will never change. You know, we, we say these curses over ourselves practically. God is at work in you and in me. Do you believe it? Because that's part of salvation. If he's not at work, maybe you're not saved. Good question, right? Have you come to him in repentance and asked him to save you? If you haven't done that, if you're just like, no, I don't know, I was just born in this church, Mal Royce, you know, I was just born here. I must be a Christian. It's like, no, no, no. At some point, all of us, including me, I'm a pastor's kid, so I, we have to ask him. We have to recognize our sin, and then we have to ask him to save us, and he will. It's his joy to do that. What he ultimately does, so the third thing, which is part of our salvation, is he glorifies his people. He glorifies us. Death is no longer the end. It's not a big dark doorway that we enter in nothingness. There's a lot of people out there believing that. How depressing is that? You live your whole life, and at the very end, nothingness. We need to pray. Pray for the Spirit of God to work in people's lives who believe that because it's very depressing. God actually uses death to launch us into life. Like we just go flying into the fullness of life when we leave this earth. We do. Everything that was promised all of a sudden becomes a reality all at once. We will be overcome, like, like Brittany was singing. We will be overcome by the goodness of God. Now remember, go back to the prodigal father. He's kissing the guy. He's giving him his robe. He's putting his sandals on his feet. He's putting a ring on his finger. He's killing the guy. He's, he's just overwhelming him with his love. And that is what death finally brings to believers. The fullness of all of that. It's going to blow us away. Like I talked about a few weeks ago. It's going to blow us away. And you've got to gra- grasp onto that and understand that in you already is planted the seeds of perfection. Of holiness. I think that's sometimes why we're disappointed with ourselves because we know we're meant to be perfect and holy. And then when we fail in the flesh to, to reach that goal, right? We, we get a little down on ourselves. But have hope in God alone. Have hope in his work in you. All right. So let's, let's look at this verse, the, the final part of it. He will save his people from their sins. At this point, everything that I've said... 
will either come together for you or fall completely to pieces. It depends on your self-perception. So when the Bible says he will save his people from their sins, we see that he's not promising, I don't know, to erase your credit card debt January 1st. You'd kind of like that, wouldn't you? Right? Or new cars for everybody. You know, like, it, it, that's not what he's promising. He will save us from our sins. Right? So, again, I wonder what you think about when you hear those words. He will save his people from their sins. I wonder if the idea of you being saved from your sins even interests you. Like, ah, okay. Do we take it so casually? Our culture is drowning in sin. Drowning in just imagining new ways to sin. Every day, every year, there's just multiplication process of how many new sins can you think of? How many new genders can there be? How many new stuff can go on here that we can call sin? You know, well, oh, we won't call it sin. Oh, yeah. What are you doing? Don't be so judgmental, right? If the angel came and said to Joseph, name him Jesus, Savior, he will save his people from their sins. And Joseph said, well, do you have to call it sin? I mean, it kind of hurts my feelings. Could we just call it like mm, a choice? That's not the Bible. That's not the truth. It's a lie. The world is subsisting on lies, you know. Sometimes we're subsisting on lies. It'll save us from our sins. So we need to feel an urgency to get saved from our sins. Either his salvation from our sins is, is real or it's a big disappointment. It's like opening that gift and saying, eh, I didn't really want that. Saving from my sins. Is there a new car? How about a cruise? Right? But saving from my sins? See, we don't understand the depths of our sins. We don't understand the, the punishment that should be on us, but he took from us. It helps us to know what sin actually means. Because we think of sin in small ways. We think of sin as petty sort of rule breaking. Like, oh, somebody made a bunch of rules. You will keep them most of the time. Right? We're very casual about sin. But the Bible has a very rich vocabulary for sin. Sin translates to the Hebrew word katar. And it actually means to, to miss the goal. Right? It's not a religious word at all. It actually means to fail or miss the goal. Right? And these three soccer players are devastated that they missed the goal. Right? We're not often devastated when we sin. We're like, yeah, I'm a sinner. You know. Christ died for that sin. Christ died to make you pure. Christ died to give you a future and to sanctify you and justify you and glorify you. He came to accomplish in us what we could never accomplish. He came to make us sacred beings in God's image who are worthy of love and respect. Before sin came into the world, God just walked and talked with Adam and Eve. It was open fellowship. Sin came and broke the fellowship. 
Adam and Eve missed the goal of staying in fellowship with God and in fellowship with each other. Because what happens is sin is driven by selfish urges which compel us to act for our own benefit at the expense of everyone else. What's good for me? And I don't care about anyone else. That's sin personified. Everything we do and say has to be evaluated based on, is this going to make the relationship better or worse? Better with God or worse with God? Better with our loved ones or worse with our loved ones? And we don't need a big list of things. We just need to look at our hearts and understand. Because sin corrupts what's good. What's good is that we can have relationship with each other. We can have relationship with God. But sin corrupts that. It confines us. It limits us. It shames us. It injures us. It makes us stupid. So we can't even think anymore. But Jesus saves us by both forgiving and then leading us into wise living. Real living. Living without the consequences, the shame, the guilt. Living in the openness, the spaciousness of a relationship with our Father and a relationship with our brothers and sisters. A place where we can breathe. A place where we can be real and be ourselves. And so... At Christmas time, we think about the gift of our Savior. We think about God offering this gift. If you open that gift, if you think about Jesus as our Savior, or as your personal Savior, that he came to save you, is there any way you would open up that gift and go, nah? Really, search your heart. Do you value this gift more than all others? Because you should. Scripture tells us that it's in valuing and making him worthy and realizing how worthy he is. We don't make him worthy. We realize how worthy he is. We make him worthy in our minds and in our thoughts and our actions. Could you... Look at God after he's offered his one and only son and ask for the receipt. You want something different than a savior. Because if so, your heart is so far from him. You don't understand him. You don't understand his love. You don't understand his power. You don't understand the future that he's promised you. And so you need to get to know him. You need to spend some time exploring that. It's like you need to read the instruction book that came with this very complicated gift. And we've got the instruction book right here in the Gospels. Four of them. God gave us four perspectives on the life of his son, Jesus, what he has accomplished for us. And so as Christmas comes upon us this week, as it's rushing upon us, let's remember the greatest gift ever given was given to you and to me in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Romans 3.23 says this, and this righteousness, 
Righteousness is that right relationship, that spacious place, that freedom. And this righteousness is from God. And it comes from or through faith in Jesus Christ. To all who believe, there's no distinction. In other words, there's no difference between people. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God's glorious standard, his perfection, his holiness. Have any of you on your own lived to that level? Not yet. Because if you say yes, you're lying. Nobody yet. But we are justified freely. This is a gift. You didn't earn it. Freely by his grace through the redemption or the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. Christians, this is what Christmas is about. The reason we even give gifts to each other is we're just sort of, you know, playing around with this idea that God loved us so much he gave us the gift of his son who brought us salvation and justification and sanctification and glorification and all kinds of other things. Glorious things waiting for us when we see him face to face. Amen. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing a final song. God, we thank you so much for Jesus. We're sorry when we haven't looked at him and seen how valuable he is. Nothing compares with him. Everything else is false. A false idol, a false idea, a false philosophy. Only he is truth and life for us. We thank you that you sent Jesus to save his people from their sins. We identify as his people. And by faith in what he's done for us on the cross, we stand rejoicing forever that you have made us your children. You've redeemed us and saved us from the captivity of our sin. You've broken the chains you brought us out into a spacious place, a place where we can move and breathe and live a life that you intended us to live in freedom and joy and in an abundance. Help us to realize what a gift Jesus is. In Christ we pray. Amen. <laughs>